Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, I am recording for Contrarians Corner for The Rocker. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and cohort and uh, companion in this trip down the path of the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Julio, the as we said before we started recording, this week has been quite a month. Uh, yes. And you might be uh, underselling it. It's funny because listeners, I mean, if they were paying attention, I think we, we kind of mentioned it. But our last episode, our, our anniversary episode was recorded pre-election. And mm. the energy, the enthusiasm was palpable <laughs> in our voices. And now I think we sound a little tired. Uh, yes. I, I wouldn't quite say defeated, but certainly like not. We, we've lost a little bit of pep. Thank yeah. God we're, we're we're doing a a feel good comedy uh, tonight because I don't know if I could take a, a serious drama. <laughs> I was thinking of that, like what movies we've done that were just like beatings to watch, and if uh, I'm, have we done any serious drama? Oh, like um, Daniel Day Lewis and Winona Ryder. What's that movie called? The Crucible. <laughs> the Crucible. Yeah, God, just the way that movie ends with him saying the Lord's Prayer and getting hung. It's like that would. I would probably have like texted you and be like, I'm we're not recording. I, I'm just I'm not, I am in no state of mind to do this. Or something that makes me like me irritable, you know, most recently H2O, but something like Watchmen, where I find positive and negative in it. I'm in such like an irritable place right now that I probably just would have been so irrationally angered by that movie if we watched it tonight. The entire episode would have been uh us screaming at each other. What happened yes. to the American dream? <laughs> It came true. God, prophetic. <laughs> Zack Snyder, man with a vision that we didn't give enough credit to. They say the Simpsons like uh, predict it, or the Simpsons, you know, call the future. I think we should change that to Snyder gets it. Snyder calls the future. Let's timestamp it so that people in the future they, they're like, well, why are they so bummed? <laughs> Just so you know, it's November 5th. So we're two days from the election. Results are still up in the air. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's why we're not like either completely crushed or partying. At this point, I don't think any result will like bring us to like an actual party, but there'll be like more like relief. So so that's mm-hmm. where we are. Enter the rocker to lift our spirits. Coming into the sixth year with a bang. Uh, a movie that was one of the original 
examples as to how a podcast like this could work when Julio and I were formulating it. I don't know if you remember that, Julio, but this was one of the, your first ones that you pointed to. Is like, see, this movie's fine, but the critics said it's bad, so we could talk about how it's good. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you gave me the side eye. I was like, give me another example. <laughs> <laughs> Try again. But it's been a long time coming, and we're coming into year six. We're coming off of uh, a long and winding road of the summer and fall. Of course, we had our historic summer of Winona, which segued right into Haddonfield Nights, our six-part series on the Halloween franchise. So it's been a while. It's It's been since uh, we had a one-off episode like this and just kind of getting back into the normal swing of things here with our uh, numeric episodes. So speaking of numbers, though, aren't we in year seven? Correct. I'm sorry. Coming into year seven. We just finished year six. Good call. Uh, Dwight Schrute coming to the table to bring us into the new year. And I guess Julio was trying to tell me this is a historic episode in the sense that Josh Gad's making his debut, official debut. Yeah, he's he's on screen. He's been basically the, the angel on our shoulders for over 100 episodes being brought up. In the discussions constantly, we have an award named after him, but no Josh Gad movies in the catalog until now. Who's Tim Taylor's neighbor that you never see his face? Is it Wilson? Yes. Like Josh Gad's been our Wilson up until this point, but now we're actually getting a a full view and a full uh, insight into the man, the myth, the legend. The Gad. <laughs> the Gad. If this is your first time tuning into The Contrarians, uh, we typically are a bit more chipper than we are right now. We just, uh, like we said, it's been a long week. But what we do here on The Contrarians is we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine is what we say. We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, sometimes not as certified fresh. Take it down a few pegs. Talk about maybe why it's a little bit overrated. Maybe some of the things in it that uh, aren't good that kind of get covered up. And uh, on the opposite side of the coin, we find a movie that is... Typically, we go about 30% and below, also known as rotten, and make a case for a movie's positive merit and, you know, the good in it and maybe why people should seek it out to uh, give it a view. Now, The Rocker is a little different in that it is a 41%er on the old RT, so goes a little over what we typically aim for, but this one, like I said, this has been a long time coming. This is one Julio has tried to get on the show for uh, quite a while. And I wish that Rotten Tomatoes had uh, some sort of feature where you could see the tomato meter history for a given title, because I am pretty mm-hmm. sure this movie used to be lower. And then it's slowly crept up, which good for everybody involved. <laughs> the power <laughs> yeah. of the gad. Yeah, the power of the gad and really the power of just the all-star cast here. I wonder if... As... The laughably stacked cast that this movie has. <laughs> oh no shit. I mean, do you think that maybe as Emma Stone's cachet in Hollywood started rising, so did the popularity of her early work? And so stuff like The Rocker or uh, the, the House Bunny, uh, they, were, they used to be much more rotten. And now they're kind of like middle of the road because, well, Emma Stone is adding some prestige to it. Isn't it hilarious to see her be like a secondary, just almost... <laughs> inconsequential character in a movie she's she's not emma stone she's just emma stone she's just emma <laughs> she is. Uh, emma stone playing they, they got real creative with her character name emma stone as amelia stone <laughs> so 
in the first portion of this podcast, the one you're listening to right now uh, that we title Contrarian's Corner, this is where we put on our Contrarian's ball cap. Uh, and if you follow us or myself on Twitter, people uh, just judge so quickly everything we say because uh, if they don't know who we are, just because we have the word contrarian in our title. And uh, as you will see, it's heavily laden with sarcasm. Sometimes there's some overflow into how we really feel, though. But if you want to know our true and tried opinions on the movie that we are covering, that will come in the second half. Yes, that'll be real talk. And uh, I, I mean... I used to think, Alex, that you hadn't seen this movie, and then you set me straight, and apparently you'd seen it before. So I guess I've gone from thinking that you didn't want to do it on the show because it looked bad to now thinking that you didn't want to do it on the show because you knew it was bad. So <laughs> I'm very curious to see, uh, to hear what your thoughts are uh, during Real Talk, because you did text me at some point saying that you didn't expect to laugh as much as you did, or maybe at all. So, so the, this movie is 12 years old, and in that time, a lot of my tastes and my uh, – well, that's what you do. You grow and you learn. And obviously, a lot of what we've done for this podcast has expanded my my view and my understanding of movies, just the things we've talked about. We've said so many times on here, or we've like brought things up that in real time we've said, I've never thought of that before in my life, and you know, shit like that. So coming into this a bit different than I did when I was 21 years old – I don't know if I ever fought it. It just seems like it never really worked its way in to the contrarian zeitgeist. But it is here, and it is about to be immortalized in podcasting lore. So let's go and get to it. I'm excited to talk about this one, and uh, specifically when we'll get into some heavier discussion and real talk. But for now, let's uh, dust off the mascara, get the hair (laughs) poofed up nice and high. Uh, get a bandana going, get a fishnet tank top, get Academy Award winner Bradley Cooper in a hair metal band. <laughs> we're here for the rocker, baby. We're going to Cleveland because Cleveland rocks, and we're going back to August 20th of 2008. Now, being at 41%, like you said, with a wavering uh, response on Rotten Tomatoes, which, as you were saying, that makes a lot of sense uh, because Emma Stone specifically... And of course, Bradley Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I think it's safe to say their stocks kind of rose a little bit since this movie came out. I think even uh, someone it, like uh, Jason Sudeikis. I mean, he's he's a bigger name. He's not a superstar. But he's a bigger name now than he was back then. Yeah, he would have been on. He probably would have been just around the time starting on SNL. And you know, you have like Aziz Ansari and a couple of random one-offs like that. That's obviously we're nowhere near the stars that they are now, but. When this came out in 2008, what were uh, critics saying about it, Julio? All right. Got a handful of negative quotes from Rotten Tomatoes' website, uh, starting from Kaleem Aftab from the National UAE, who says, It should be a fun ride, but the dialogue and plot are too predictable, and Wilson has no fun with the old foggy role. I disagree. I think, I think Ryan Wilson has a lot of fun. He might have the most fun out of everybody in the movie. And also, <laughs> that whole plot is predictable. As we've discussed on this podcast numerous times, both on and off air, that's not always a bad thing. You can just cook potatoes in a familiar way and they can still be delicious. Yeah. Who the fuck eats McDonald's French fries and they're like, nah, too predictable. Had them before. Not good. One star. 
<laughs> Four out of ten. Yeah. Uh, Michael Dequina from The Movie Report says, Just because one is a scene stealer on TV does not mean he or she is big screen material, period. Much less Ooh. a movie star. That's going to be a big uh, part of the discussion in Real Talk that we'll get to is the idea of the TV versus movie star. But that dude, that that's harkening back to the days of, you know, the 60s, 70s, and some of the 80s. The idea of you're either a TV star or you're a movie star. You can't be both. Don't so you don't dare. even fucking try it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't tell if Michael Dequina likes The Office or doesn't like The Office. Man, you want to talk about contrarian? That would it's become kind of almost uh, in vogue to act like you don't like The Office now because you know it's been off the air for ten years. But imagine at the height of The Office popularity, being the asshole. It's like this sucks. <laughs> this sucks, and the rocker sucks too. He probably didn't like the 40-year-old virgin either. Uh, Victor Same. Oliver from Teletext says, One of the problems of Peter Catania's film is not knowing who it's aimed at. Kids won't identify with a bitter old rocker, and the middle age will be hoping for more satirical spinal tap. Um, that's a, a dumb take. Yeah. <laughs> Movies can be for many different people. All at that's once. Like, that's like watching a review of Tommy Boy being... Kids won't be able to relate to Chris Farley's character because they're stupid kids. They can't understand what it's like to be on the road being a salesman. <laughs> and the middle-aged folk won't be able to relate to Chris Farley and David Spade because they listen to the rock and roll music. <laughs> uh, in the end, I would say, well, kids are supposed to identify with the kids, not with uh, <laughs> with Rain Wilson. Yeah. I think the kids that watch this movie will identify with Josh Gad. Yep. Like, he's shy. I'm shy, too. Yep. He's in the Book of Mormon. I'm in the Book of Mormon, too. and finally Jonathan Kiefer from Sacramento News and Review says to those moviegoers who've expressed some weariness of Will Ferrell and Jack Black always doing what they do well okay here's somebody else doing it man Rain Wilson took it hard (laughs) those reviews nobody mentions anybody else I looked it's all about Rain (laughs) Wilson we need to find the one review from you know the Piccadilly Times or no, you need a smaller paper than that. The fucking uh, Tempe Gazette or whatever paper they have out there that is someone that just writes like a scathing review of this movie and just harnesses all the energy on Emma Stone talking about how she's bland and will never accomplish anything or go anywhere. That review has been removed from Run Tomatoes. It's been removed from the internet. They found the guy that wrote it and took him out in the desert and made him dig his own grave. <laughs> so, as I said, it is 1986 Cleveland, Ohio, and we are at a local venue with the band uh, Vesuvius, as it were. And the opening credits start rolling out. And in 2008, yeah, I could see that this was just kind of an Empire Records-esque cast and that you have a few names on it that are recognizable and the rest are, uh, you know... Up-and-comers. A variable, a variable who's that. But watching this through 2020 lenses, the hits just kept coming. I, I had forgotten about so much of this movie. I had only seen it once previously, and that was a 35mm screening. Uh, the version I watched today was an internet-based copy that was extremely high quality and some of the music is really catchy too so I, I was glad i got to watch it in glorious hd you own this don't you julio i own it i i might have to just spring for the for the blu-ray now 
Uh, I'm assuming there's a Blu-ray. <laughs> and it's it's in the True Lies uh, category. True Lies, uh, the rocker, the two most sought after Blu-rays in the game. The problem is they can't license the music. The ADD music is too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Teddy Geiger's got the game on lock. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I got the the DVD Born to Rock edition. It's two discs. One is my uh, God. I know. I know. I I opened it. I was like, "What the fuck? What?" Uh, but then the second disc, it just says digital copy, which uh-huh. I, I guess you you were supposed to put the disc in your computer and just rip it, and that's your digital copy. I don't know. Because um, these days, digital copy means you just get a code and you download it. But maybe oh this, yeah, that is how they used to born do to it. rock edition yeah. was before that that application of the technology. Uh, there's a gazillion special features, but going back to a discussion that we had a few episodes ago, no trailer. And I probably never would have noticed if you hadn't brought it up uh, a while ago. It's, it's going to bug you now from here on out. You're going to check and be like, son of a bitch. He's wrong about a lot of things, but he's got this one pegged here. In the Rob Zombie fashion, does it have a two hour and 40 minute documentary on the making of The Rocker? Uh, it probably does. There is literally <laughs> three pages of special features. Oh my god! Uh, two commentaries. Uh, one is with uh, with the director and Rain Wilson, and then the other one is with uh, the rest of the band and and uh, Sudeikis. They got Emma Stone to do commentary for yep. that. Yep. There is a, a special feature that's just called podcasts. <laughs> that's all it says. Wave of the future. I know. If I known that there was so much potential like material there, I would have watched the movie earlier and gone through the special features. There's like a, a shitload of it. And of course, there's a music video for I'm Not Bitter. Outstanding. Is it like the one in the movie? I hope so. I don't okay. know. I, I hope that it's, I don't know, the real band, whoever plays the actual songs, and then, you know, the, the movie band comes in and joins them. At least Rain Wilson does the drums for a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I will watch and report. This is not over. <laughs> this is only the beginning. Yeah, I couldn't find anywhere really if... Uh... Rain Wilson really played the drums for this movie, or how much of it he really played. It looks like his sweat. Yeah, they get pretty creative with the the filming. I did learn, however, that Emma Stone actually learned how to play the bass for this movie, and she can play all the songs that are in the movie, which, as if Emma Stone wasn't a attractive, just downright sexy enough woman, just the idea that she, she actually learned to play bass for this movie. God bless. Making overachieving look good. She thought this was going to be the breakout. <laughs> But like I was saying, the the credits here just come rolling out like uh, the best sampler platter that you can get in the game. You know, I made the analogy previously in an episode of a sampler platter where one thing's good and the other's not. This is just keeps stacking on some of the best tasting bar food you've ever had in your life. And then it says Bradley Cooper and you're like, what? And then you look at what's going on on the screen. And you're like, is that Bradley Cooper dressed up like Nikki Six? And it is. You got... 1986, this band Vesuvius, in which our titular character, The Rocker, played by Rain Wilson, uh, is the drummer for this band. Um, As I mentioned, the guitarist played by Bradley Cooper, the frontman Will Arnett, and the bassist played by the incomparable Fred Armisen. It's it's insane. I I would watch a prequel about Vesuvius, just, just with that core cast. Well, especially because, like, now we know... From like Portlandia and shows of that nature. And also, I think he has a couple albums or has helped on some albums. Fred Armisen's a real musician. And then with The Stars Born, we know Bradley Cooper can croon. Uh, I'm sure Will Arnett can play a harmonica or has some really like, <laughs> you know, niche skill like that. 
And Rain Wilson's been around the drums so much in this movie, you know, he's picked up a few things. So I would absolutely pay to watch them do like Beatles covers. You'd go to a show. You'd go to a Vesuvius show. Oh, absolutely. And I would go to this one. And my third note is I wish I had lived during hair metal. Every time I I know when we reviewed uh, the Dirt, the Motley Crue movie, it's very easy to have golden age thinking and be nostalgic about things that you weren't even around for. If I had like a time machine or, you know, some fucking looper thing of being able to time travel and go back and do it a certain way, I would want to have experienced hair metal in real time because I'm as a fan or as oh, a, absolutely. As a musician. Yeah, like, <laughs> would you want to be alive today? <laughs> yeah. Just the poofy hair and the eyeliner and the ridiculous outfits and shit that they wear that now you could be committed for wearing pretty much. <laughs> and the music was so fun. It was before the I'm literally going to start doing fucking Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei's dialogue from the wrestler here. But <laughs> it's before the cynicism and cold nature of grunge came into the fray. And it was the last era of everyone just having fun. And it's, it's captured here on screen in this movie with Vesuvius just fucking jamming out. And they're obviously the, the hot new band on the circuit and are poised to be launched into the stratosphere of superstardom. And their agent, played by Jeremy Jam, which, again, watching this in 2008, no clue who he is. But watching it now, I was just like, ah, it's Jam. And he's – I guess I haven't seen him in too much else. I, I – Gather he just plays the jam character and everything. Maybe he had a role in Girls where he was not a complete asshole, but uh, <laughs> I instantly, when I see him, I'm like, that's jam. In, 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 in jam fashion, he he jams uh, Rain Wilson here. <laughs> Self-jammed. Oh, God. What is this gentleman's name? It, it, I'm never going to memorize it. John Glazer. Glazer, yeah. So, yeah. Jeremy Jam. Tells the band, hey, Matchbook Records wants to sign Vesuvius, but they don't want um, Fish, who is uh, Rain Wilson, Robert Fish Fishman. They said, well, take the band, just not him. They want to, the record executive wants to put his nephew in the role of the drummer. And the band at first is like, no, man, we'll stick together, rock and roll. But then in the true spirit of hair metal, where you just step on everyone just to get over them, <laughs> which again, there's still something mildly admirable about that. They're just like, fuck it, he'll land on his feet, we'll be all right. And then they uh, sign off, and then Rain Wilson gets told, you know, what's going on, and then we get this Terminator-esque chase scene when they're trying to leave the venue, and he, he doesn't he on foot, like, chase the van down? Yeah, yeah, he runs, uh, I mean, they say 60 miles an hour. That's how fast the car was going, and, and Rain Wilson was keeping up with it. Then he jumps on top of the car, he stabs through the roof with his uh, drumsticks, and then when they they finally get him off the car by by breaking, he falls, and and then he gets up like the Terminator. And the entire time I was thinking, man, they're jumping the shark already. Like ten <laughs> minutes in, this is not good. Uh, and then I realized the genius of it because we know we're in a flashback, and and you know eventually cuts to present day Rain Wilson, and then you realize that no, he's just remembering it a very specific way he's exaggerating his memories uh and not just exaggerating it but exaggerating it in a in a very rock and roll way right he he's grown older but he's still a rock and roll guy and basically if he were to write his his memoir his tell all story of his time in Vesuvius the chapter that deals with when the band dumped him would be 
as as outrageous as over the top as the flashback we just watched. So that that was actually really clever. And then so the movie almost lost me, and then it just pulled me back even closer. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think of that. And yeah, it was Terminator like T two style when he had his drumsticks and he was slashing into the car and like crawling using him. Outstanding. And we go 20 years into the future, and as you said, he still personifies a rock and roll lifestyle, but now we see that uh, Robert Fishman is working at a call center. He still has his little ponytail, though, you know, just in case the, the day ever comes when he gets a booking, in case he ever gets the call. This quickly turns into Cameo City. We have a, a Aziz Ansari as uh, Aziz playing him <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> himself with, uh, I don't know why it caught me just because this was pretty close to the beginning of parks and rec where you know he always had that really svelte haircut and he's got a really dirty like you know middle junior high school bowl cut going on and he's obviously not around for too long his character exists to be like oh vesuvius has a new album out and then rain wilson freaks out and beats him up and gets fired yeah he he didn't get the the and credit this is not supposed to be a, a wink and a nod to the to all the parks and rec fans no and he must have still been pulling down some considerable bank at that call center, though, because Fish's girlfriend at the time is fucking Jane Krakowski, who <laughs> lives in a pretty swank apartment. So he obviously was still doing okay for himself. Maybe not living the quote-unquote dream, but he he at least had some things going for him. You never know what you have until you lose it, though. The nerve he had to break up with uh, Jane Krakowski. <laughs> yeah, she tries to break up with him, and he cuts her off. He's like, I dump you. He's like, I think it'd be best if you get your things and go. This is my apartment. (laughs) So this leads to him having to move in with his sister. And again, the hits just keep on coming. As Jane Lynch plays his sister, she is married to uh, Jeff Garland. And the incomparable one, the chosen one, the, the immortal Josh Gad, blesses us with his presence as he plays the role of Matt, who is, uh, Rain Wilson's nephew, correct? That's how it plays out. Right. Uh, I would watch that sitcom just like I would watch the the Vesuvius prequel. I would watch a sitcom that's just uh, whatever the last name is. But, you know, it's Jane Lynch, Jeff Garland, Josh Gad. If you want to keep the little girl that's Josh Gad's younger sister, you can. But but really, that trio, like the star power, <laughs> and just, the, just the, the crazy situations that would get week in, week out. Where Josh Gad is just trying to figure out how to be uh, slightly more popular at school and Jeff Garland tries to be hip with the kids and Jane Lynch has to keep it all together. That's just, that shit just writes itself. Just the visual dynamic of Jeff Garland and Josh Gad playing a father-son combo. Playing catch. Yeah, exactly. The just natural comedy that's there between the two of them. And although we don't really get many one-on-one interactions with Stan and Matt, uh, Garland and Gad respectively, there's still a dynamic to their relationship and just the inner workings of the whole Gadman family are fantastic. And, you know, it may, it may be a bit early to, to speak all the praises of Jeff Garland, but he came to play in this one. He, he steals every scene and sometimes without even uttering a word. He mastered the art of comedic physical presence and God bless him for it. Matt, Josh Gad is in a band with several of his high school, um, Cohorts, a band called ADD. They've got the prom coming up, but unfortunately their drummer has to withdraw as he made hash brownies for his Spanish class and then got suspended. So the band is down a drummer. Enter Fish, 
who hears the tryouts happening as he's currently living in his sister's attic and Matt and the band practice in the garage. He hears, uh, I think, like a house DJ, a beatboxer, uh, some dude just going ham on the drums with real, really no rhythmic ability and comes down and tells them they should be ashamed of themselves. What this does, it eventually leads itself to Josh Gad having to talk Rain Wilson into taking a gig and helping them out to play. Uh, I already referenced the wrestler, but it's not unlike that when they have to talk Randy the Ram out of retirement to come back, you know, for for one last gig. Uh, but he he wants to. I mean, it's still once a drummer, always a drummer. It's in his blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's you know, this is the moment where the hero initially refuses the call. This is what they call you know the the hero's journey, dramatic structure. Mm-hmm. He refuses the call, then he takes the call. <laughs> He doesn't let the call go to voicemail anymore. He he takes the call and he he goes on on the beginning of what the rest of the movie is gonna be, and that's gonna be Rain Wilson teaching these kids to loosen up, to to experience life while living vicariously through them. It's it's amazing. So he agrees to do the gig, as he keeps referring to it. Uh, so he is gonna join ADD for the evening at uh, the prom. He shows up in full regalia and not having missed a day since 1986. He's got skin-tight pants on, a um, kind of a cross between David Lee Roth and Steven Tyler top. He's got his headband. He comes in, and this was like I think the first time in the movie I audibly let out a boisterous laugh, and that he shows up with five minutes to go and one of the characters, I believe it's uh, Curtis, who we haven't discussed yet, played by Teddy Geiger, who Teddy is the front man of the band and is the songwriter and kind of the you talent. know is the glue, the talent. There you go. That holds everything together. Uh, Rain Wilson shows up and he says, uh, Teddy Geiger says, you know, we're on in five minutes. He goes, no, we're headlining. We, should, we shouldn't go on till 11. And Emma Stone, you know, obviously this was a massive precursor uh, and before we knew how incredibly funny she is just with an incredible droll delivery says it's the prom it's over at 11 <laughs> and i specifically remember that sound drop being in the trailer for the movie yeah she's great she's great everybody's is great i i'm sure you know just to go back to that thing you do because it's it's really inescapable if you've seen that thing you do do you recognize the beats in this story as well, uh, you know, outsider comes joins the band. The band becomes super successful due to that event, and then they have to deal with their success. And in, in, you know, just what happens? This this movie has a happier ending than that thing you do, uh, and better music, I would argue. But it, it's Ooh. still there. You know, that's like when you're watching it, it's kind of recognizable. But then at the same time, you kind of have to acknowledge that uh, you know, like that that dude in the. <laughs> And those quotes were the guy that was saying, oh, there's nothing new. It was like, well, yeah, there's nothing new, but it's how it's executed. And, of course, this is just – it's that type of story, right? The let's make a band. Let's go on the road. Let's have some success and see what happens kind of story. And so I would see it more – it's not a ripoff of that thing you do. It's an updating of that type of story uh, with modern technology, fresh talent. Uh, it's It's always welcome. So they play the prom, and all is going pretty well, and according to plan, until the prom king and queen are crowned and the slow dance begins, they play a Phil Collins cover of All My Instincts that uh, was stuck in my head the entirety of the day after this movie. Unfortunately for ADD, Fish gets a little bit too into it, and he has a 
you know, the nom flashbacks here where he's taken back to the time when they were, when he was in a band that was on top of the world. So he just starts, you know, beating the fuck out of his drums and just going on this massive drum solo, which of course is not fitting to the tune or the tone of the prom. So it gets them effectively booted off stage and the remaining members of ADD feel that, you know, that was their undoing and that their band's one shot has been taken from them. So, Obviously, because of this, Fish feels remorseful and wants to make it up to the band. He goes to visit them, uh, only to be greeted by a once-in-a-lifetime talent in Christina Applegate. That's I, crazy. Just... I, yeah, I, I feel like I sometimes forget she's the love interest in this movie. <laughs> but then when she shows up, it's... Like I said, you know, I made the use the dated expression that the hits keep coming, but it really feels like that with this movie. There's not really a character in this movie that has any real role of prominence that you're like, oh, who's that person? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's Christina Applegate. Unlike, I think, you know, at the time of release, most of the 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 cast didn't carry the weight that they carry now, but Christina Applegate did. I mean, this was yeah, this was Kelly from Married with Children. She already she was already uh, a presence when she shows up in this movie. Veronica Corningstone. So yeah, so you needed to to make it kind of. You need to help us accept this relationship. And so it's cool that she shows up and she's not taking any of uh, Ray Wilson's bullshit. And, uh, but she also, she's confident enough to just kind of make fun of him without being super rude. That's, I don't know. I just, I, I think that she's crucial to the way that this movie works because through her eyes, I think that we learn to kind of tolerate Ray Wilson and then eventually like him and respect him. Yeah. And they do have not just the characters, but, the actors have really good chemistry like in their meeting here. And then cause he basically introduces himself as a friend of Curtis, who's a fucking high school kid. And she takes him in just uh, doesn't say like, and sweetie, when is your mommy coming to pick you up? <laughs> and he's, he says, you're hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's really good. Big fan of, uh, of Christina Applegate, not enough movies with Christina Applegate, at least not that I have seen. Oh, yeah, and if you have listened to our podcast in the past year, my endless gushing about Dead to Me and her fantastic acting in that. But yes, she is good, and I think she falls in the category of she's been in bad movies, but she's never been bad in anything mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I've seen. So, Fish's plea to the band, hey, I'm sorry I want to make it up to you guys because I want to continue to be part of ADD, as he says he's going to find them a gig, a gig, the all-elusive gig, their first shot. And ends up booking them on in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which may be like a three-hour drive from Cleveland. I'm not sure. <laughs> Worth it. Yeah, it's not a stone's throw. It's at least you know enough that they need to steal uh, Jane Lynch's van to get away. And she actually just calls the cops on him. So there's really not much that comes of this uh, first gig. But what it does result in is that Fish is booted from his sister's home. Uh, he ends up living in the basement of a Chinese food restaurant and is basically separated from the gad he's told that he can't see him something i liked i found refreshing for in this movie was the fact that rain wilson is as much of an oaf as he is and he's really clumsy he's always you know physical comedy uh, galore here because he's always tripping over something or slipping or just banging his head somewhere but he is talented. The movie doesn't shy away from showing that he can play the drums. Uh, he may be completely a man out of time. 
it in the sense that the he doesn't quite grasp the social norms. <laughs> He's kind mm-hmm. of stuck, you know, in the eighties. But you know, when it comes down to it, he can play the drums. He has some outdated but somewhat useful resources when it comes to booking gigs. I mean, he's not a complete waste of time. It's not that he's completely delusional and these kids are kind of like putting up with him. He actually is beneficial to the band as much as they don't like to admit it at first. And I thought that was cool because most movies, I think, would err on the side of making him just completely intolerable and completely useless. And that's where the comedy would come from. But but here... Peter Catanio, he's he allows him to be somewhat effective, and, and which makes sense because you know you need these kids to still feel like like they benefit from being him being in the band in the band. That's why the story doesn't end when when Jane Jane Lynch kicks him out of the house. They actually seek him out and they try to figure out a way of keeping the band together. So Josh Gad invents Zoom is essentially what happens <laughs> yes. in the next portion of the movie. <laughs> he. Gains access to the four band members, obviously the three other band members, himself included, their computers and installs these webcams that uh, he says, you know, there's no delay and state of the art, high tech. The GAD is the brains of the operation. He got them all Google Fiber. (laughs) God, God bless him. But yeah, definitely ahead of its time. And it's something kind of fitting and appropriate given the situation and the scenario of uh, so many people having to utilize zoom so frequently right now, given the, the state of things, but here we get, and I refuse until I'm told otherwise the, uh, homage to Gigi Allen's drummer, Dino, the naked drummer. I understand it's funny, but th- this has to be, and if not an homage, then just a, well, it worked for this guy. So we're going to put it into our movie. Rain Wilson doesn't understand that it's a camera. He just thinks it's a microphone. And because the, uh, shed or shack, shanty that he lives in is so sweltering with heat he plays the drums naked uh we get a startling amount of man ass in this movie Dwight ass. we've talked it yeah we've talked at length about the controversy that is man ass in a movie how it's almost a guaranteed r rating but then keeping up with everything else in the movie there aren't really any shits or bitches or anything like that it seems like the language is pretty tame and this is probably where the rating came from i thought they said shit a couple times later on in the movie they they parceled him out so they could get that sweet, sweet Dwight ass in the movie. <laughs> but Dwight plays the drums naked. It's funny. And of course, because it's on the internet, it leads to them becoming a viral sensation. Yeah, this movie invented Zoom and it invented influencers, I guess. I want to say that early in the 2000s, we still we hadn't been saddled with the word influencer or it's ramifications but i mean that's basically what happened instagram didn't exist and twitter was nowhere near as powerful as it is now so yeah there we didn't see pictures of fucking rain wilson you know endorsing certain juices and things like that (laughs) it's enough to to get them a career though uh so good for josh gad i think the sequel he invents instagram Uh, enter Jason Sudeikis, who we've already made a few references to. He represents Matchbook Records, and because of the viral success of Fish the Naked Drummer, uh, but also the music that plays in the video of him drumming naked, that, that's the agreed-upon thing, is the song is really catchy. So there's you know a gimmick to it, but also the music's good. Sudeikis here with just an incredible look. The way his hair is <laughs> kind of poof but slick back, a perfect fucking MAGA goatee and uh, 
just the outfits he wears and his body language. We've talked about Sudeikis on this podcast before. I'm not quite sure um, off the top of my head when he's been around and things we've covered, but I know he's come up and he is so funny and him being a smarmy asshole like this, that, you know, the egotistical, I'm better than you. He's so good in this. And the quote you sent me was that he refers to Jeff Garland as Norm from Cheers, which this was right at the beginning of the era, the Apatow era of going out of your way to explain the joke you're telling. Mm -hmm. So by modern standards, the idea of him saying, oh, it's Norm from Cheers isn't as funny as it was in 2008. That was, and I remember the first time I watched this movie laughing really hard at that. But his delivery of it and Sudeikis, everyone, you know, we, we talk about these movies from time to time, these movies that bomb and these movies that don't do too well. And for this reason or that reason or, you know, uh, disagreements, egos, strife on set, things of that nature. And this movie did bomb. I believe it only made half of its budget back. But that's not from lack of fucking trying. Nope. They, they had all the talent there. <laughs> yeah. And everyone in this movie. And then, you know, you think the game's been upped and that we're eventually going to hit the fall off point where here we just kind of get some people circling in, <coughs> excuse me, cycling in and cycling out. Sudeikis shows up and just refreshes the whole movie. And also the thing that, that I realized this time around was that he shows up kind of to not just push the movie in a new direction, but also in a very meta way, just tell you what the movie's not going to do. Because mm-hmm. it would be so easy for the movie to just become about the viral video. Once you get the naked drummer viral video uh, in the game, the movie could be just about that. From then on, it's just, oh, you know, isn't it funny that Rain Wilson drums naked and that's why they're popular and now, you know, whatever. It's It stops being about the naked drummer over the next 10 minutes and it's just about them on the road and whatever. But it could have been about, you know, instead of the rocker, it could have been called the naked rocker or whatever. But Sudeikis... He literally has a speech where he says, uh, yeah, you know, the, the naked thing was, it's a cool gimmick, but what really matters is the music. They come in for the naked drummer, but then they get hooked on the music, and then before they know it, they're humming it. And that's really what happens here. The The movie uses the gimmick of a naked Rain Wilson, but then it just hooks you by now. You, you've been watching for about 40 minutes, if not longer, and you're hooked. You're invested in the success of this band, and also you're humming the music. It, you, you're all in. So instead of resting on their laurels and just kind of taking the easy way out with uh, the idea of this band just kind of playing via Zoom and uh, Rain Wilson being famous because uh, everybody's seeing his ass, it becomes a road movie. You know, the next part, the second half of the movie is just about them being on the road. Something completely different, uh, which is good. Mm -hmm. Sudeikis, I think before you and I leave this earth... We need uh, a movie that stars Jason Sudeikis and Vince Vaughn. Can you imagine the like the riffing scenes with those two? Yep, yep. Um, if we ever get a a third horrible bosses, I could see Vince Vaughn being one of the one of the bosses. But just like you were saying, I had that scene. He's like, you know, you see the naked drummer, and it's funny. But then you hear the music, and then you start humming it. Like the way he delivers that is. So similar to the things we talk about when we've done like Fred Claus or uh, Mm -hmm. The Dilemma, just the way Vince Vaughn delivers his lines and, you know, is very salesman-esque. I I think it would just be uh, almost too fast to keep up with (laughs) them together in a scene. (laughs) So ADD gets signed to a label. They go to the studio to record. Uh, This is where we kind of hit a turning point for the band as Teddy Geiger's music, Curtis, uh, the front man, 
the music he's writing while good and you know with powerful lyrics the studio and the um, fellow bandmates find it a bit of a downer so there's just kind of little tweaks made here and there and you know uh, Dwight offers some suggestions and kind of helps the upbeat nature of what they're doing but what it really shows what it delivers here is it shows that they're becoming a cohesive unit they are becoming a band yeah so deck is like outside the the recording area just going i want something poppy i want something snappy i want something happy <laughs> but he's already he's starting to shine through as you know a real fucking scumball and that he's already kind of planting seeds of superstardom in teddy geiger's head and it's clear that he's a vindictive not necessarily vindictive. What's the word I'm looking for? He definitely likes stirring the pot. I'll just say that much. Yeah, he's a troublemaker. That's uh... there you go. <laughs> he's a record executive. <laughs> there you go. So they go on tour, and we get our first montage of the movie, where it's kind of watching it through the my modern eyes that it's kind of a depressing montage because it just shows Rain Wilson consistently drinking alone <laughs> while everyone else in the band is. <laughs> You know, in bed or doing their own thing. I thought you were but, gonna say that it just it consistently shows gatherings, people interacting with each other without a mask. Oh, that too. I guess that's why it did make me sad because I was like, oh, I've become Rain Wilson, just drinking alone to fight off the pain of what's going on. <laughs> no, it's it's showing that he's just so fucking happy to be back on tour, and you know, it's he's getting to do what he always wanted to do with Vesuvius and. Um, we even get a uh, almost famous mm-hmm. reference. Did mm-hmm. you catch it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It yeah. It, it gave me pause because I, I'm not like you. I don't have the release dates all like archived in order in my mind. So for a moment, I I was like, did almost famous rip off the rocker? <laughs> oh, almost famous came out almost ten years before this. Yeah, but you know, it was fun to think about for maybe five seconds because I was like, oh, Alex would be so mad. <laughs> My fucking God, I just forgot until this moment that Rain Wilson is in Almost Famous. That's right. He's the editor at fucking Rolling Stone. Yeah, man, everything comes It all comes full circle. I wonder if Rain Wilson was the one that suggested that. He's like, hey, you know, I was in a movie a few years ago called Almost Famous. They had this throwaway (laughs) gag about being the golden god. I could be the golden fish. The the naked drummer. You know... Uh, like five years ago, I made this movie with this guy named Rob Zombie, and you wouldn't <laughs> stop talking about this guy named Gigi Allen, right? So, <laughs> finish this montage here. All these towns are going across where we see uh, fish take it a bit too far, the fantasy of the rock and roll lifestyle, and see that it's changed a little bit from the, the hair metal days since the decline of Western civilization, and throws a TV out the window. Of course, because it's a comedy, we got to show a shot of him getting hit in the nuts with the power cord. He sells it. Oh, it's perfect. And it's one of those cuts, too, where you know that it wasn't all in one take. He just had to stand in front of the camera and do, ooh, ooh, <laughs> ah, a bunch of times. Takes talent. Just ask Adam Sandler. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, Alex. I'm sure you, you could also like just see, recognize the type that Rain Wilson is playing here, which is that he's transitioned right into being the guy that tries too hard to have a good time. And... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure I've I've been that guy at some point in my life. Uh, I don't think very often because what my main memories is seeing that guy, being at parties, being at reunions, gatherings, get-togethers, what have you, and just seeing 
the guy that's just trying so hard to make it happen. And sometimes it's just supposed to be a calm night. Yeah, but but there's somebody that always wants to just really get fucked up every time and just make it memorable to be able to tell the story of this party this evening to his grandkids. And uh, I I was surprised, I guess, at how much I you know, I didn't I didn't hate him. I I was just like, oh yeah, I recognize you. I know I know who you are. And it just I saw a human being trying really hard to fill a void, <laughs> which I don't know that I could have done that, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, whenever the movie came out. Uh, we were talking earlier about how our perception of the movie could change as as we get older. And this is certainly one of those scenarios where I think that his behavior would have really annoyed the hell out of me before. And now I'm just like, oh, yeah, it's one of those guys. He's hiding a lot of pain. <laughs> well, also, there's not really too much more explanation and by too much more i mean there's literally none we know nothing about his relationship with jane krakowski uh or you know the circumstances or how long they had been together before they split up so it's true he's a man that's been waiting two decades for this moment to come along and now that he has it he can't get out of his own way to appreciate it yeah but you know what i like too it's just that the movie it allows everybody else to partake in his enthusiasm because he's giddy about every development, but he's not the only one. I mean, Jeff Garland, even Jane Lynch, once she gets on board with the idea, the, 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 even Christina Applegate, though she's trying to be cynic and not not really get into it. But in the end, everybody's really happy for him. They're really happy for the kids. Again, going back to an alternate version of this movie that would be a little more formulaic, you would have... Everybody against them. You have the parents being difficult mm-hmm. and you would have everybody constantly giving Rain Wilson a reality check and telling him that he's too old for this shit or that he's he's not good enough, that it's not going to happen. But instead, everybody's so supportive through the movie. You have a clear villain, obviously. You have Jason Sudeikis. Uh, and I guess you also have uh, Vesuvius when they come back later. But, uh, but overall, it's just... It was, so nice to see everybody rallying behind this guy it just being happy for him being happy with him it, it was it was cool because in the end he's not a bad guy he he has every right to be excited and uh there's something a little uh just melancholy about the fact that you know he has to be like what in his 40s in this movie and uh he's living vicariously through these kids success but also eventually becomes being becomes part of it and his big message throughout the movie is that it's never too late to have a second chance. And that's something that, you know, you can always relate to. Oh, absolutely. But this partying and boozing and schmoozing leads to the band getting arrested. And we get a tried and true trope of lighthearted and comedic movies of seeing the characters one by one get their mugshot taken and their individual reactions to it. And... Of course, we get an awesome side profile of Josh Gad smiling while he gets his mugshot taken. <laughs> what this uh, causes is the parents of the kids to show up, say, fuck this, the tour's off, you're responsible, you can't be trusted to you know, be around our kids. And Christina Applegate steps up to the plate and says, I'll stay with them because this guy's an idiot doesn't mean that we should rob these kids of their dream. So I'll remain on tour with them. What can go wrong? She, she hasn't met Jason Sudeikis yet. She has not. Not too far behind, though, as the band is going to shoot a music video, this kind of just a day in the life type sequence of showing what it's like to make a music video, the trouble of costuming, wardrobing, uh, hair and makeup, 
all the trappings of fame and superstardom. It's been a while and since uh, since we had a famous cameo. So one of your favorite stand-up comedians shows up. <laughs> Is he? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Dimitri Martin shows up and plays the role of the director, which I did not remember this at all. But he has like the really pretentious presentation and the really uh, rare camera. I can't remember what exactly he calls it, but he's also going to do like stop motion in the video. And it's a segue. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. It's a way to kill about five to 10 minutes in the movie while also bridging, you know, like it strengthens the relationship with Emma Stone and Rain Wilson. It kind of buds some of the relationship between Christina Applegate and Rain Wilson, but not too much happens in this segment. Yeah, it it does show uh, great range even this early in Emma Stone's career because she's asked to play very attractive girl who doesn't think she's attractive. <laughs> she has the line. <laughs> she has the line of like maybe I don't belong in a music video. And I was like, I understand they're trying with the hair, making her look silly, but uh, it's still Emma Stone. <laughs> so uh, good for her in that. You know, you buy it just enough. By now, the movie has you, so you can just go with it. But but then the moment that you step back, especially if you're, like, writing notes for a podcast, you do a double take. and like, wait, what? <laughs> Did she really say that? We get montage number two of the film and the band on tour and things being a little bit more responsible. One thing that's you kind of have to pay attention to it for yourself in this movie because it's only explicitly called out, I think, once is that because Rain Wilson's an older dude, he's in his 40s, this is taking an incredible physical toll on him. <laughs> like yep. Throughout one of these montages, it shows him every night soaking his hands in ice after the show, uh, even to the point where he has to take an ice bath. And he's wearing more and more braces and uh, wraps and you know his carpal tunnel bracelets on his, on his wrists, uh, or gloves, excuse me. Like I said, it's not specifically called out. It's kind of a dark aspect of the movie, but it's also hyper-realistic, so I appreciate that they put it in there. And also, I think it allows him to bond with Christina Applegate because eventually he has to slow down. And it's in that moment, I think, when he slows down that that he finally... Uh, that she gets to see a different side of him. So that's good. <laughs> it's those types of things you don't really think about in, in the you know glamour and glitz of being a musician. So seeing Rain Wilson... Uh, add an extra wrinkle to his character. There's one scene, I don't know if we'll specifically cover it because it's kind of inconsequential to the story, but where he's standing up straight and he's acting like everything's fine, but then when he sees he's alone, like leaning up against a wall and, you know, clearly in pain, it's something you wouldn't expect to come from a movie like this that I I greatly appreciated. There's this other scene where uh, he gets a, when the band's not touring, he gets a side job at the deli counter. At the as HEB. Oh damn it! I, I thought you were gonna do something like a little bit different because I was gonna say then there's one scene where he meets with I don't fucking know uh, <laughs> Jane Krakowski and tells her I'm alone and I deserve to be alone, but I just don't want you to hate me. The waves crash in the background. Uh, we sometimes we know each other too well. <laughs> <laughs> I did not ring in to Vegas to see what the over-under was for five wrestler references in the <laughs> Rocker episode. But, I mean, truth be told, it makes a lot of sense. So, at the conclusion of the second montage, we see that a party is being hosted for ADD, and this is where we learn that Josh Gad is a very introverted individual and very shy, but he's noticed that uh, a same girl has come to their shows, and she has a shirt on that says, I heart Matt. Obviously, his name in the movie. Emma Stone, you know, hits him with the why don't you go talk to her. 
Uh, Josh Gad has the incredible line of, well, her shirt could mean I heart Matt LeBlanc from TV's friends. <laughs> He's great. This is, this is, I mean, this kind of movie, it's, it doesn't really have Oscar aspirations, but at the same time, you know, the, the for your consideration Oscar clip <laughs> would be Josh Gad's moment here because he's being on the background. Most of the time, this is not a Josh Gad vehicle, much as we would like it to be. Um, no. It, it, I mean, this is young Gad. If, if they made The Rocker today, then Josh Gad would be playing the Ring Wilson role, uh, and I'm sure he'd kill it. But here, he's playing one of the kids, and he doesn't. he's there for you know a joke here and there. And then he gets this moment where he's really vulnerable, really sympathetic. You totally get it. Most of us have been there. It doesn't matter if you're a rock star, you're still you're still doubting yourself and uh and it's cool that he has that relationship with someone like Emma Stone where it's not romantic at all and even though they kiss here it's it's basically a joke. And so I, yeah. I I really I really liked it. it felt very true to life, very relatable. Uh it was it was great. Yeah, so he just says I'm nervous, I've never even kissed a girl, so you know, I guess in a sense of She's one of the guys, just she's a girl. She takes him aside and kisses him. It's like, see, now it's done. No fuss, no muss. <laughs> just like that. We <laughs> You just shrug it off. If you kiss him a stone, it's like, eh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, for real. That's, you know, Josh Gad's like, all right, I got that out of the way with this really average looking girl. So now I'm going to go talk to this other girl over here. He, he walks over uh, to, uh, to the I Love Mad Girl with a raging boner. <laughs> he like knocks her drink over. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We get the premiere of ADD's music video, which I my note says uh, just says Mike Wazowski because that's the fucking joke in the video is every at every cut uh, Fish's face is covered up by be it a drum or a guitar or someone else in the band. It's heartbreaking, uh, dude. That's uh, his Ray Wilson's reaction to seeing it. It's really sad. Mm-hmm. He doesn't speak a yeah, single line he, of dialogue. He yeah he just kinda, it's it's emoting it's acting with a capital a he's watching all this and he's clearly bothered by it but he's still excited at the the prospect of having a music video and then also the idea that you know his bandmates are thriving but it's clearly uh hurtful to him and as if you know things couldn't get any worse in the day uh jason sudeikis's character outlines hey we are gonna have y'all open for vesuvius as they get inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame and he like short circuits here. He's just like, no, no, no. And starts throwing shit and throwing a fit. Uh, the rest of the band's like, no, we can't do that. And Jason Sudeikis says, uh, well, what if I already said yes? What is that? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool to see the band just rally behind him. Again, going back to what I was saying, that everybody's really supportive. At least initially, it was really cool to just see everybody without a second thought. There's no discussion among them. They just say, uh, no, then we're not doing it. And, and that's it. It's great because, you know, it's really cool to see them like that as, as a unit. But it was really cool because it gives Sudeikis a chance to really, I don't know if he was riffing, but he's just really funny. He just goes on one of those Vince Vaughn kind of rants where he's just kind of spitballing and, well, what if we replace him? And what if we, you know, do this? What if we do that? It's it's just really good. Obviously, Fish is not happy with all this. So he goes outside just to let off some steam and Christina Applegate, uh, Kim, I don't think we've actually named her character thus far in the movie. She follows him out and calm down, calm down. He's yelling and hollering. It's like the crazy homeless man on the Simpsons that police chief Wiggum tries to calm down. And eventually she's exhausted all of her potential ideas to get him to shut up. So she just grabs him and kisses him. And it, it works as 
I, I could probably be in the worst mood or just in a fiery place. And no matter what, if Christine Applegate kissed me, I'd be like, all right, life ain't that bad. This movie knows men because in the span of maybe 10 minutes, it's it's had two instances where men are having meltdowns and attractive women kiss them. And then it made it all better. It also shows that women are smarter than men enough to the sense of no, well, this will, they know how to control us basically is what it shows. And rightfully so. They are the more intelligent gender so that's uh a deserved exhibition in this movie anyway it works he shuts up why'd you do that oh to shut you up uh, all the while while this is going on uh jason sudeikis comes out and sees this what is his actual character's name david marshall he sees this going on he say i think he mutters to himself uh something about yoko <laughs> yeah so immediately like a kid with a secret he runs and Find some alone time with Teddy Geiger and says, you know, I think it's really cool that you're okay with fish banging your mom. And which obviously is not the case, but Jason Sudeikis just could not sit on this information. He had to give the pot a good stir. It's probably the closest the movie comes to to feeling a little manufactured, right? Because like we said, they've been really pushing the idea that that this band is a family, that everybody is just, they're tight. They, they have each other's backs. And so, well, you have to introduce conflict. You have to get Rain Wilson out of the band uh, so he can have a triumphant return. And I guess the weakest link is uh, Curtis. And it, it's somewhat, uh, not even somewhat, I guess it's supposed to be completely understandable. You don't want your mom dating Rain Wilson as cool as he might be. Mm-hmm. And he's a he's a teenager, so he's you know obviously conflicted about it. It it makes sense. I I wished it gotten there a different way because I felt that it was Curtis's turn from being just so supportive and so behind everything uh, that Rain Wilson was doing to suddenly being a complete dick to him on stage. It just felt I had to remind myself that he was a teenager, and and oh yeah, you know it it, it makes sense, but I had to like do the extra work to get there. Uh, but it's still, I mean, it helps that everybody's performing really well and it's just, the way it's staged is great. I mean, I understand the tension that comes with from all this coming to a head in front of a a packed, uh, I don't know, are they playing at a bar? <laughs> I don't know, but you know, they, the setup is really good for, for that kind of, uh, I guess, turn into the third act. So yeah, it was, I guess I was just bummed that that unity that they'd shown so far was broken almost too easily. But I guess they bounce back, they managed to bounce back later on, so it, it's it's all okay. Yeah, as Julio mentioned, they it leads to um, Curtis and Fish getting in an argument on stage at their next gig where Curtis pretty much preemptively announces that they're going to be opening for Vesuvius and that it's going to be a free show and anyone can come and, you know, Fish is opposed to this and it basically just leads to, okay, well, we'll find a new drummer so going back a few paces, talking about Rain Wilson physically falling apart when he tries to storm off stage here, he just he rolls his ankle and he falls and going out of the club, he uh, I think he rolls his other ankle and Christina Applegate catches up with him. And here we have uh, part one of a two part soliloquy that Rain Wilson gets about growing up and, you know, because he's obviously distraught about this and Christina Applegate points to the fact that he's just a kid who hasn't grown up and that, you know, he, he's still trying to chase his rock and roll dream. And he has the line of, I tried growing up for 20 years and I absolutely hated it. I was miserable. And that shit cuts deep, man. 
Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's the exact opposite of the uncool speech and almost famous that always fills me with optimism and hope about life. Uh-huh. This uh, just, I was like, fuck. <laughs> I, I just want to stay 23 forever. Just don't let me leave. Don't let me go, Murph. That's what I would say to myself <laughs> at 22. Uh Rin Wilson is the the male feature version of uh, when our writer's character in reality bites. He thought he was going to be someone at 23. (laughs) (laughs) But he couldn't give up on the hope and the dream of it all. Nope. But this, yeah, he's done. He he quits ADD. Uh, They replace, or the record label replaces him with uh, some blonde kid that um, Josh Gatt hilariously refers to as uh, he looks like Abercrombie's making people now. This this segment of the movie too. There's two shots here with just gratuitous Pepsi placement, where I'm always a fan for product placement that is just so blatantly in your face, and there's been no attempt to cover up what it actually is. It's. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you catch it? No, I I caught all the Xbox product placement, but not, yeah, not the Pepsi. That's- Look how much fun they're having playing Xbox. There's one shot of Josh Gad where he's centered frame and it's almost like a focus pull with the, the Pepsi can next to him <laughs> that it it goes like in and out of focus at one point. It it really tickled me. And then it leads to Dwight at the his new job with a shiny can of Diet Pepsi. Um, but Teddy Geiger, Curtis, comes to apologize to uh, Fish. And this is like the closing on his monologue about growing up sucking because <laughs> Teddy Geiger is like, I never knew real life was so boring. And uh, Dwight says, and soul crushing. Don't forget that. <laughs> yeah. The movie turns into a real bummer for about five minutes. <laughs> Until you realize the dream is still out there because he says, we can open for Vesuvius. I'm sorry we got in a fight, but, you know, let's do this. This is the the opportunity you've always waited for. I think it was the last like huge belly laugh I had in this movie is Teddy Geiger saying that, you know, Matt told me that if I asked you more nicely, you would have said yes. And Rain Wilson says of the Matt character, even though he's a genius, he's an idiot. And I don't know why that tickled me so hard, but I lost my shit at it. It's funny because Uh, I, I thought again, they're, they're just playing with you in a good way where you, they follow a very, heartfelt moment in the movie which is when josh gad and emma stone tell curtis you handled this really badly you should have just asked him and he would have said yes right because he loves you he loves Mm -hmm. the band he really cares and when they're saying it you're like yeah he would have (laughs) then when he actually asks him ray wilson goes no (laughs) they were wrong (laughs) i am this self-involved so that was that was pretty cool i i I thought you were going to say that your last big belly laugh was Jeff Garland uh, trying to gather everybody in the office because Ray Wilson is working at Jeff Garland's, uh, I guess, company or whatever. But he tries to gather everybody to help uh, Ray Wilson do a a stage dive from on top of the table. Like Ray Wilson's having a total Jerry Maguire moment. And uh, yeah. And then he gets on top of the table and Jeff Garland rallies the troops. And then he does a pretty lame looking uh, stage dive. But. for all intents and purposes, it's still a win. Yeah, Jeff Garland, the character, I, we've talked about him a lot, but his character is essentially the guy who did life the quote-unquote right, right way, got married, had a family, and you know works a, a good steady job, makes a good income, and provides for his family. But he's so 
envious of the rock and roll rebellious lifestyle that Rain Wilson, the the fish character, lives, and he just loves to support and encourage it. And um, yeah, we forgot to mention you you had brought it up there the scene where Emma Stone and Josh Gad shame Teddy Geiger into apologizing. Uh, Emma Stone had the line I remember from the trailer so vividly where she it's something to the effect of he's dumb and sloppy and he's full of life. Yep. And that was <laughs> that's like the crescendo of the trailer, I remember. Yeah. Ah, it it used to be better. As this scene ends and it's become clear that the stage is set for the finale here that uh ADD with Fish as the drummer will play uh, to open for Vesuvius, we get the unrivaled banger of Final Countdown by Europe start to kick us off. Shout out to the American Dragon. They're backstage and they come face to face with Vesuvius after these 20 years. And Fred Armisen, Will Arnett, and Bradley Cooper, multiple time Academy Award nominee and winner Bradley Cooper is there. And they all have these British accents. And it, they're all really funny with it too. I can't remember which one it is. It says... Oh, he's just taking the piss, but that made me laugh so hard. And uh, basically what you would expect at this point, because Rain Wilson has grown up, he's learned a lot over these past few weeks, months, whatever the timetable is here. And he tells them, you know, in another life, if I saw you here, I would have killed you all. But now I'm in a different headspace. So have a great show. Uh, We're also we're maybe five minutes 10 minutes tops away from from the end credits rolling and we get yet another awesome cameo uh going back to the 30 rock well josh from 30 rock shows up as the new drummer he's the guy that replaced rain wilson in vesuvius ah uh, yes and he says like i'd like to point out i actually am from london <laughs> uh yeah f- uh fucking fred armison wait a minute we know him he used to play with us <laughs> it's so dumb but god it's really funny and what it leads to is add opening for vesuvius and they have a rocking set they just rock the place upon exiting the stage this is where the curtis character after some sam and diane will they won't they uh flirtation and eye flutters throughout the movie uh, curtis finally asks out emma stone uh, the Amelia character for uh, for them to go out to dinner after the show, just the two of them. And this is where we get Emma Stone smiling yep. for the one and only time in the movie. Yep. I, my notes say, she smiled and then underlined. <laughs> we knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure at some point, because uh, Fish says, you know, I promise I'm going to get you to smile by the end of this tour or some, something like that. You know, introducing a gun in the first act type thing. Mm-hmm. And... As Vesuvius takes the stage, they begin a rockin', but it quickly becomes apparent that they aren't what they seem. As uh, one of the microphones flies out and the music keeps going, uh, the tape starts skipping. I did take umbrage with the fact that Jason Sudeikis, I believe it was his character, said we got a real Ashley Simpson situation here. Was this because Whereas, you thought it's a real Millie Vanilli situation? Yes, it is a Millie Vanilli situation. God, we are so fucking old. We are Rain Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> what, do people not know who Millie Vanilli is anymore? I don't think mm. so, man. <laughs> at least. Oh, come on. I mean, I'm sure at least hopefully half our listeners do, but I would imagine that the target audience of The Rocker, at least in the mind of the executives, were like, no, let's go with the easy one. Let's go with Ashley Simpson, because everybody watched that SNL clip. It was on YouTube. But the difference uh, is, like... This was clearly patterned after Millie Vanilli because the tape starts skipping and then they just run off stage, which is. But anyway, <laughs> I I will 
there's several things in this movie that there's no way of proving, but I believe and will be steadfast in my beliefs about. But they leave, they storm off stage, a la that concert in Canada with Guns N' Roses where they led to a riot happening. And the crowd wants more ADD. Jason Sudeikis warns them, hey, if you do this, it's going to fuck with your deal with the record label. And they tell him to go, you know, pack sand. <laughs> I think, no, yeah. So there is some swearing because I remember Rain Wilson says, read my lips, asshole. You're fired. <laughs> and then they go up there and they fucking rock the joint. And we get a freeze frame fade to black to the credits. I mean, for a movie like this, it would have been disappointing if we got anything else. Yeah. It's, uh, isn't uh, Rain Wilson like mid jump when the. Yes, he's got his knees pumped up in the air, and he's just so happy. Yep, he reached his goal, and we are too. We wanted this to happen. Everybody gets what they deserved, uh, good and bad, right? Vesuvius, uh, it, it's great because we know that for in order for Rain Wilson's character to truly show us that he's grown, he has to forgive them. He has to move on. That's what growing up is. But at the same time, we want these fuckers to get some sort of comeuppance, and so so that happens. Um, Sudeikis gets fired. Uh, I don't think the movie hints at Rain Wilson and Kristen Applegate actually getting together, but you mm-hmm. can see the friendship is alive and well. She hugs him. She she uh, tells him that she misses his old haircuts. That's that's really cute. Uh, Curtis and and Amelia looks like they're gonna go on a date. Uh, Josh Gad already has a girlfriend. Everybody gets a happy ending. Even uh fucking Jeff Garland is like front row rocking. <laughs> It's the guy, the guy that owns the, the Chinese restaurant. It's also like yes, he's like I know that guy. Everybody is just such a happy, crowd pleasing movie. Just what we needed. It pulls all the like yeah, exactly. Everyone you've met along this journey, along the way, are all there in the end, and it pulls everything together in a a very easy yet happy and optimistic way that was on its way out of Hollywood in a lot of ways, especially in the comedy uh, realm. And we'll get more to that here in the second portion. And I think it's as good a time as any. You ready to move to Real Talk? Sorry, I was drinking. Yes, (laughs) let's go to Real Talk. What brings you to the house of Lee? I have a way we can still practice. So I've taken four webcams then i've interfaced our computers to create a non-delayed real-time virtual network hello is this thing on can you hear it can you hear testing testing mic check check can you hear me this thing on it's a camera. It's not a mic, We're Uncle Rob. We're good to go. Rob. I can hear you. Okay, we let's do you. this. <laughs> it's not a mic, Uncle Rob. Am I the only one seeing this? Why is no one reacting? Try tomorrow never comes. Curtis, are you watching this? Okay, tomorrow this never comes. Fitch. Ready? Oh. Oh, okay, God. here we go. Okay. One, two, one, two, three, four. All right, I am recording for Real Talk for The Rocker. The Dwight Schrute vehicle. Not uh, many released, of those out there. Not many of those. Released again on August 20th of 2008. Julio, what was your original infatuation with this movie? Because you were always uh, <laughs> a proponent's a strong word, but you, anytime this movie came up, you would 
make sure you gave it its props. What was uh, your original fascination with it? I don't know. I don't know that I can explain it, man, because it's not even like I'm a big Rain Wilson fan. I I think that some of it has to have nostalgic attachment, maybe. I like you, the first time I watched it, it was just screening it. And I remember having an okay time. I mean, just thinking it was funny. I this was before I was a Josh Gatt fan or an Emma Stone fan. I, I I'm pretty sure I didn't know Will Arnett or Fred Armisen or Bradley Cooper uh, or Jeff Garland or Jane Lynch. I didn't know anybody here. I knew. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was even watching the the Office at the time. So this was just. Uh, I probably recognized uh, Emma Stone as a girl from Superbad, and that might have been it. The main thing was knowing that the director of the movie was the same guy that did The Full Monty, which I really liked. He um, did, yes. So. I so I, I screened it, I liked it, and then after moving to Austin, I remember going on a one of our famous midnight Walmart runs. Uh, my roommates and I, where we would just go and buy snacks, and and then we just go through the the DVD bins, like the cheap ones and the new ones, and inevitably come back with something. Uh, usually, many purchases, and the rocket was probably in the discount bin. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, I remember enjoying this movie. Let's watch it. So we got home. We, we were eating and drinking and watching this movie. And I was still having a good time. And it wasn't until the movie was over when I realized that my two roommates hated it. They <laughs> didn't care for it at all. And somehow that did not dissuade me from kind of telling people about it. Except that now, when ever since then, whenever I bring it up, I'm kind of... I expect people to not like it, uh, Mm -hmm. but I don't care. So I guess it's kind of a guilty pleasure or it's been categorized in my mind as a guilty pleasure. Uh, I was very curious to see how I was going to react watching it now all these years later. Uh, I mean, it's been sitting in my collection, but I hadn't really revisited it since because why would I? (laughs) But uh, I think it holds up about as much as it can hold up in the sense that it still made me laugh. It didn't make me think it was a good movie, but I also didn't think it was a bad movie. It was just, I don't know, there's, and I think we're going to be discussing this, but the way that it goes about just trying to make you happy is somewhat wholesome. And that's, I think, part of its appeal, if you're into that kind of stuff, which I guess mm-hmm. I am. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's really cheesy and it, it, it can get really cringeworthy, but then it has moments where I'm just, I'm all in. You know, when you ask me why I kept bringing it up, it's not because of the Josh Gad aspect of it or because I think that Green Wilson is particularly funny in it. Uh, but it's just because, to me, it's a, it's one of those movies that I think is generally thought of as, as a failure. And yet, when I think of it, I think of it fondly. <laughs> Even while remembering all the things that don't work in it, I... I still remember. I think of it as something I enjoyed when I, whenever I watched it, and this time around wasn't any different. I, I still I was laughing out loud, and you know, just kind of rolling my eyes whenever, whenever they performed because I don't think the music is very good. <laughs> but overall, I mean, I don't know. It, it just it seems like uh, I could be wrong, but it seems to me like history has been a little harsher on the rocker than than it needed to be. 
I would agree with that. I would start by saying this is exactly what I needed right now, this movie. I got a lot of enjoyment out of it, but watching it and kind of thinking and a lot of the things you said, it feels like this and the house bunny in a lot of ways were kind of like the last comedy character vehicles or actor vehicles that were really popularized in the 80s and specifically the 90s with like the SNL type movies. Uh, These movies that are really cheesy and, you know, Tommy Boy is an example I made earlier. Joe Dirt was one I was thinking about too, but like these ideas of these movies that are really broad strokes comedy uh, that are predictable and cheesy but leave people at the end of the day, you know, happy having watched them, which is a huge chunk of comedies from the 90s. But as we got into the late 2000s, we talked about how The Dark Knight did a lot of things and they changed a lot of things in the film industry for, in some people's opinions, the better and some people for the worse. But also like on the comedic side of things, it was, um, I feel like this movie it's one of the last ones I remember before we really got entrenched in that Apatow, uh, you know, that crew and that whole cornering of the comedic market, specifically in America, of overindulgence of dialogue and making sure there's something, at least some aspect of the story that's kind of dark or brooding uh, along the way. So watching this now, it was a breath of fresh air. At the time, I could probably see that people were kind of tired of this and, um, it's a new day, man. You know, we don't need these antiquated style of movies anymore. Whereas I watch it now, I'm like, fuck, why aren't there more things like this? I mean, there's no movies at all right now, but, you know, generally speaking. Um, <laughs> why isn't Tenet like this? <laughs> why isn't the movie of this year exactly like this? So, yeah, I mean, that's obviously we're jumping off at a, a big point there, but let's uh, take it back a few steps. So, being that this movie was 41%, like I said, uh, released in the summer of 2008. Uh, I mean, that's Dark Knight territory right there. Came out just a little after uh, a month from the Dark Knight. A budget of $15 million, a box office return of a little under nine. I think in the first portion I said half, but obviously that's a little bit more than half. Uh, written by Maya Forbes and Wallace Waldarski. Uh, not overly familiar with uh, Miss Forbes' work, but I do know that Wallace wrote some really good episodes of The Simpsons, uh, including Lisa the Greek, like Father Like Clown, Last Exit to Springfield, amongst others. 41% as it stands today on Rotten Tomatoes, and as Julio mentioned, directed by Peter uh, Catanalo, or excuse me, Cataneo, who directed The Full Monty, Lucky Break, Dear Rosie, Opal Dream, and then he would follow... Uh, the Rocker up with Military Wives, something I've never heard of that stars Kristen Scott Thomas from 2019. God bless. Hey, still working. There you go. Julio, besides yourself, what was the positive praise that was being heaped on this movie? <laughs> yeah, my uh, my Run Tomatoes credentials were rejected that year, <laughs> so I, I didn't get to put in my, my two cents. But... Uh, Handful of positive quotes now from the Run Tomatoes website. Kelly Vance from East Bay Express says, More fun than a fifth of Rebel Yell and a bag of Qualudes. I was thinking of, uh, yeah, I was thinking of Wolf of Wall Street for whenever somebody brings up Qualudes. 
The yeah. ludes. Peter Rayner from Christian Science Monitor says, A whacked-out, superannuated, would-be rock star might seem to be too easy a comic target, but Wilson gives this sad sack so many fresh twists that he never wears out his welcome. Mike McGranahan sure. from Isle Seat says, I had a really good time watching The Rocker. I laughed, I tapped my foot to the music, and I reveled in the extraordinary Rain Wilson. You know how all the negatives were were talking about Rain Wilson? Well, it turns out all the positives do as well. Uh, you're, but, you're on one side of the tracks or the other. Yeah. But it's, it's in the end, it's a Rain Wilson vehicle. Nobody else matters. Uh, and finally, Kevin Carr from Film School Reject says, One of the best things about this film is the insane commitment that Wilson has to get a laugh. And I can agree with that, even if he doesn't make me laugh maybe half the time. But I can't say that it's for lack of trying, because he really is trying really hard. Yeah, uh, I often I'll start a lot of times our Real Talk discussions with a fascinating movie. And I wouldn't necessarily call this fascinating. I think the most entrancing aspect of this movie is the ridiculous cast that we had mentioned. Uh, again, the star power of the people involved at the time ranged, and obviously a lot of them have gone on to... Uh, much higher levels of prominence and celebrity. So for that reason, watching it through 2020 lenses is pretty pretty hilarious. Bradley Cooper playing a guitar in the beginning of the movie was not something I had remembered at all. Uh, Julio, I thought I had told you this. Do you not know my rocker story of when I saw this movie? No, no, I, I thought you hadn't seen it. So that's also, I think, one of the reasons why I've been pushing it throughout the years, because I wanted to watch it. I probably, if I'd known that you'd seen it, I would have backed off a little bit. <laughs> so the rocker premiered, looks like two months, two and a half months before it was actually released. And uh, back in the day, kids, there would be these things called sneak peeks where thir certain theaters would uh, get the rights to a screening for a movie for like one night. And like, that's how I saw super bad. I saw super bad like two months before it came out in college. Cause I got to go to a sneak peek of it. But anyway, I was working at Cinemark at the time and uh, our theater for whatever reason, got a sneak peek of the rocker in June. It was, yeah, it was two months before it came out. And, uh, it was my first time ever working a sneak peek, and this was back in the glory days, uh, you know, 12 years ago. This was back uh, when we still had movies on film, and the process for a sneak peek is a lot different. Uh, did you ever work at a theater that did a Disney sneak peek, Julio? Uh, if we're talking about security measures, then I probably did, because I remember, uh, you know, having the dude there watching you. Yeah. And actually, if you're going to tell me about security stuff, then maybe I've heard this story, but just not, I didn't know, or it didn't register. It was about the rocker. Uh, Which makes it even funnier that it's about the rocker. But uh, like, it wasn't as extreme, but I remember we did a sneak peek of Toy Story 3. Uh, they only showed the first hour and it was like four or five months before it came out. And like, you couldn't have your cell phone in the theater. Like, they only you showed the first like hour? Uh-huh. It was like a really weird, and you had to like enter a raffle to get into it or something. But uh, point Calm being, down, Pixar. <laughs> well, I mean, shit. X Men Origins Wolverine and topical to us that we talked about Rob Zombie's Halloween that got leaked online two weeks before it came out, and that's because of shit like this. So for a sneak peek, it's a little bit different of a process. The movie comes to you, uh, you know, an hour before it's going to be screened, so you have to build it up. 
And they sent a studio representative there to like watch you do it to make sure you're not fucking with it or anything. It's just a very like understandably uh, overprotective process, but it still just comes across as comical in the end. This dude in a fucking black suit just staring at me, watching me build the <laughs> goddamn rocker. <laughs> because I went through all that, and for whatever reason, we had to have me at the projection, uh, at the projector, excuse me, in case something went wrong. So the first time I watched the rocker was at that sneak peek. I just stood by the projector and watched it and had a few good laughs and whatnot. But I don't know if I had seen it cover to cover since then. So watching it today, like I already mentioned, this was, it's just innocent and does not try at all to be anything profound and doesn't try to manipulate your emotions in any way. It's just a innocent, fun, uplifting movie about, you know, just having fun and living life. And sorry, but we need those from time to time. That's... I, there's plenty of movies like this that we've harped on, like comedies that try to be funny and aren't. So obviously it's a it's a tight rope to walk. And we know now that with a cast like this, it would be hard for this movie to not be funny. These things are necessary. These types of movies are necessary. And it upsets me that these have kind of been eradicated and that we've, because the things have changed and we, the whole dynamic of television and film is so different now. I think this was kind of, at the end where uh, you could still separate television actors from movie actors, now it's, you know, everyone's on everything and everything just kind of blends together. So I could see the idea of this when this was filmed in 2007 being the idea of, hey, it's the guy from The Office. And, you know, he had obviously been in movies before, but it was this, let's use this, you know, platform he's created for himself with this Dwight character and see if we can't, you know, make some bucks off of it and potentially make a comedy star in the process. I wonder if that hurt the movie because it just as we're we're talking about just the how innocent or how wholesome the movie can be. I mean, it, the thing is, it lacks cynicism. I think that that's something that it, it really differentiates it from, I guess, the average comedy that would come out now. But uh, but if you knew Rain Wilson from The Office. That's the kind of humor that you are expecting from him, right? Yeah. You keep expecting expecting the, the the movie itself, the vehicle, a Rain Wilson vehicle, to be snarkier, and that's not what happens. <laughs> it's Rain Wilson. It has the Rain Wilson mannerisms uh, to a point that Rain Wilson physical humor, but the snark is gone, and yeah. that might have turned some people off as far as explaining why it didn't do as well as you would think it would. Because The Office was by then a big hit. So uh, how did that not translate into a better box office? Well, I think it's uh, what you said. It's um, that Dwight character. It's pretty much consummated Rain Wilson's acting career. That's he is Dwight. And, the you know, I mentioned those SNL movies. And the reason those, I think, a lot of times succeeded was because it was just it's exactly what you're used to on TV. Whereas this is, hey, it's that guy from The Office, but then you go see it and it's, oh, he's not acting anything like that. I mean, that's, they mentioned, reference Matt LeBlanc in this movie, and that's a good uh, example too. Obviously a fine, talented young man, or I guess at the time he was a young man, and succeeded, made a lot of money on television, 
but I don't see any scenario where that guy wouldn't go, wouldn't be Joey wherever he went. And <laughs> hey, he like listen, I said, uh, lost in space. That that's uh, that was kind of the trappings of television acting. And but like I said, that's everything is shades of gray now, and especially with you know Netflix originals and stuff. It's the to me, there is no longer TV actors and movie actors. There's just actors, and they're in whatever we watch now. You know, we talk about Jason Sudeikis in this and a few other people, SNL alum, and that's what I feel like has really hurt them is they seem subservient to all actors now, whereas for a while, uh, and even in this time frame, um, you know, Fred Armisen and things, uh, Will Arnett, they seemed like TV actors. And so seeing them in this movie and movies of the time, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the person from SNL. Whereas that whole luster seems to have been gone because things have changed so much. Like I said, uh, it's weird that this movie made me, you know, ponder and reflect on upon all this. And like I said, it really feels like uh, the, the takeover would have already begun but it really feels like that Apatow style of comedy has completely cornered the comedy market uh, as far as a mainstream appeal goes. Obviously, there's plenty of dark comedies and you know other things that come out constantly, but they're not as broadcasted as much as Judd Apatow and that style of comedy now that has you know storytelling and it's <laughs> who to thunk it. Watching this and just being like. This isn't like, a, I'm not going to say this is casino, but this is like perfectly acceptable and a good time. And what we kept mentioning earlier, and I recently watched Joe Dirt and I was thinking a lot about that watching this. The plot of that is so dumb, but everyone in it is either having fun clearly or really going for whatever they're being asked to do. And that's the same thing here. It, if nothing else, you can watch this and you can stay those people had fun making this movie and that's enough to kind of give you a boost and get through it and whatnot, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Nobody's uh, sleepwalking through the roles here and, and everybody's being really funny. I, but I guess let's start at the top because it, it is a Rain Wilson vehicle. So even starting before The Rocker, how do you feel about Rain Wilson in general? I mean, are you are you a big fan of Dwight in The Office? Uh, I mean, yeah, he's hilarious. Like with all other characters in that show, they got to a point where they became self-parody, but that's certainly not his fault. Um, I thought the Dwight character was funny, and it's one of those now that I'm not really sure who else I could see playing him. Uh, my experience with Rain Wilson elsewhere is, you know, somewhere between this to his, you know, minor roles like Almost Famous and Juno. I've never seen Super. I've heard that's one of his big movies, but I'm mm. I've never seen it. I, I didn't I didn't like it, but it's fuck, is that no, it's not Zack Snyder. I'm sorry. It's uh whoever uh wrote... Gunn. Yeah, What's James Gunn. Yeah, James, James Gunn. Gunn. Yeah, it doesn't I, I was really pumped for it and it didn't really work for me. It's not about Rain Wilson, it's just the movie itself. It's just um and I know in, in my case I did not carry that preconception into Super or into this movie or anybody else about what a Rain Wilson vehicle was supposed to be. I don't think that I liked his character in The Office right away. Uh, and he kind of grew on me as, as the show went on, as I watched it. But I got into The Office really late. So uh, I don't know. You know I, I think that also had part of it, it had a, a part to play. I, overall, I like him. I do think that he has certain 
mannerisms, his style of comedy is not necessarily uh, up my alley all the time. I can I I find him funny, but not as funny as I think that true Rain Wilson fans do. So uh, when I watch this movie, I don't really care much for the the big over the top stuff you know when he's he's sticking his head out of the the roof of the of the car of the van and and he gets hit by a branch or gets hit by a bird or he trips over something and he falls that kind of stuff just uh i think it's physical comedy in general and rain wilson's physical comedy in particular just eh, i don't find it that funny uh but he has like ace ventura ace ventura is really funny but i think jim carrey is just exceptional at that kind of stuff (laughs) So Fair enough. yeah, if you're on that level, then yes, it will work on me. If you can, if you can grab your ass cheeks and pretend that they're someone's mouth, then okay, <laughs> I'll fall for that. But no, when Rain Wilson gets me in this movie, and it's happened every time, is just a little bit of what I was talking about in Contrarian's Corner, which is the just the enthusiasm that comes uh, from his character. Everybody else in the in the, in the script in the in the in the story, you know, they're just kind of they're there. They're just sitting there until he arrives and he just gets them all going. And I that quality, he's able to sell it. It's just that enthusiasm, the energy, the fact that he's just so uh, gung ho about making things happen. It's bordering on delusional, but still, you know, because it's this kind of movie where things work out. Then it's uh, it's just endearing. You can tell obviously the exact same story. Uh, and it not be a comedy and then it would be just you know a very tragic case of a man that needs to move on and can't but in this case it's inspirational it's this guy that doesn't give up and gets a second chance and makes the most of it and and i wouldn't have thought that the guy that played dwight Schrute in the office could like sell me on that but he does so to me i think that's the greatest compliment i can do i can give his performance here uh, which is in a way the answer to this like well he's an actor what did you expect you know he, he's not just only going to play play uh do i shrewd roles but it surprised me even you now probably more than the first time i watched the movie when i wasn't familiar with the office and to me that's that's the thing that works the most old as dorky as his his lines can be sometimes when he's geeking out about the 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 right test or you know technical malfunction their first recovery their first group is oh that's really cheesy but he's just so into it that i mm-hmm. i can't help but be with him in, in that moment just share the enthusiasm he carries the movie the, whatever failings the movie has are not about his performance i think that he steps up to the plate and he proves that he can carry this kind of movie uh, whether the world was ready for that or was willing to accept that that's different um that's a different question but as far as his talent, I think that he, he proves in this movie that he can do it. And and considering that he has a cast that's mostly, you know, even, I don't know if better than him, but certainly uh, it's easier to rally behind everybody else when they are, you know, such comedic talents as, you know, Jane Lynch, mm-hmm. Jeff Garland, Josh Gatt, Emma Stone. Uh, it's just really weird for me that it's not a movie that's a little more beloved. So again, it's just, I don't think it's about the performances. It's about the uh, the lack of cynicism. It's not cool to like a movie like this, I think. Uh, yep. It even, I mean, you know, watching it now, watching it tonight, I, I still cringe at some things. You know, there's some, uh, I mentioned the music earlier and uh, you've seen that 
episode of Saved by the Bell, I'm sure, where they they make a band. It's just a one-off mm-hmm. episode where they become like rock stars. And that's every time that there's musical performances in this movie, I get that vibe where it's just they're trying really hard to sell us that this is a really good band and I just I'm not feeling it. I'm just I I don't want to hear that music. Do you like the music in this in this movie or No, I was comparing it uh, in my head watching it to uh, School of Rock where I do like the music in that movie. Uh and that's another good example, a movie that really is free of cynicism and I think it gets a pass in some circles though cuz it has a uh, Richard Linklater attached to it. But that's a movie that works on all levels, like I was in comparison to this, because like I said, I enjoy the music in it. And this, no, I that time period of music's weird, and then you just it seems like the least amount of work went into the music for this movie, which is fine in theory, except this movie is based around the music. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where the issue comes from. Right. And Emma Stone doesn't strike me as a bassist in a band where she doesn't really get the front and center uh, spotlight. Josh Gad absolutely strikes me as someone who plays keyboards. Yep. (laughs) And then, yeah, Teddy Geiger, not overly familiar with Teddy's work. I was looking at her Wikipedia page and looks like her work is... As far as the film industry goes, it really seems like she's more in the realm of music. Um, yeah, there's really not much to speak of as far as a filmography goes. Well, so, that would make sense if just basically, well, I don't know. I don't know if this is what happened, but if she was there as a musician playing, you know, being an actor in this scenario rather than mm-hmm. as an actor playing a musician. <laughs> yeah, it looks exactly like that's what happened, which in that situation makes sense and would speak to why she wasn't up to snuff with, you know, Titans of the industry, Emma Stone and Josh Gad. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> that was, that was going to be my next point. That was going to be, <laughs> you know, it's not as bad as I think it is whenever I think of the movie. Cause I always think, Oh, you know, Curtis is the weak link in the ensemble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is that that character also has the the worst writing because he has the the cliche part of being the sensitive songwriter that in this case i think the lack of cynicism would just went a little too far I, the, when he's talking about his uh his songwriting and and explaining what the lyrics mean or just kind of singing along with them i just ugh, it reminded me of uh and be cool whenever we had that those scenes where uh, you know what I'm talking about, where, oh God, I don't remember the name of the actress, where she's supposed to be a revelation, the musical revelation, and she, she gets on the piano and she's playing, and we have the the close-ups of Travolta and Uma Thurman kind of like nodding along, like they're listening to this masterpiece. And here, everybody reacts to Curtis's musical talent like it's supposed to be great, and it's not. So that automatically makes it, uh, it makes you harder to buy into the performance. And, uh, He's out of all the characters. He's the least funny. I don't think he gets actually any real laughs, uh, you know, real like no. jokes. Josh Gad and Emma Stone are killing it, and he's just there kind of to be a drag. Uh, he's supposed to be, I guess, the heart of the movie. But I, th- I feel like Rain Wilson is carrying that part, and and, and Curtis is just, uh, yeah, Teddy Geiger just not, like you said, not up to snuff. If if her strengths were 
in the musical side, and that kind of makes sense. I I don't know. I can't like, really judge as far as the the actual singing performance, but the, the acting performance and then the arrangement of the music overall is just it didn't grab me. It makes for such weird contrast too, because you're going from the the eighties rock metal you know feeling, and then you go into this band that it's like I don't know how would you describe it. I mean, it's is it it's not even grunge, right? It's just no, it's definitely like mid 2000s emo type shit yeah yeah i was gonna say emo but i wasn't sure <laughs> it's just not it, screamo it's definitely no. emo though fuck screamo would have been more interesting <laughs> speaking of the band members you know we spoke about emma stone's casting being kind of comedic and it's appropriate that i referenced the house bunny as a similar movie to this and that she's in that right yep yeah the, and that one, they Kat they put Dennis. glasses on her. That was that was their attempt at making her look not attractive. God bless. But yeah, I mean, she learned to play the bass for this. She's obviously having a good time. It's again such an, a harmless movie that her character being written weird is not that big of a deal. And then of course Josh Gad, the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour. He was still crafting, honing his craft, as they say. He was still figuring out his niche he did have a couple parts in this movie that i thought were particularly funny uh the one i wanted to call out was when they're on their tour bus and they get a call from their agent jason sudeikis and he's like are y'all sitting down and josh gad goes one minute and then he like sits down (laughs) and he goes well stand back up and he so he stands back up and i know we've talked to people friends of the podcast and friends of ourselves that uh don't like gad's whole shtick and it was really, really easy to watch this in 2008 and be like, oh, man, they just, you know, poor man's Jonah Hill. Uh, just because, you know, like I said, this was off the heels of Superbad, which was a generation-defining comedy. So you see a character like this, a chubby guy with kind of an Afro type get up, get up and really sarcastic and facetious. So it's easy to make those comparisons. Obviously, time has shown they're in kind of different realms and they both have gone on to do different things. So I think time has been kind to his performance in this movie. Cause I remember that being a big criticism at the time was people thought he was just a Jonah Hill knockoff. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of, yeah, they're so different now. I, at the time I probably, I probably even thought the same thing, but I mean, you can't look at his character now, his performance and say that Jonah Hill would have given you the same. I, I think that Jonah Hill, well, maybe just now, because we've seen him in so many things, he carries a certain smarminess uh, with him that somehow Josh Gatt doesn't carry in this performance and maybe even in his performances now. I, I, there is something goofier in uh, Josh Gatt's persona that it's not there with with Jonah Hill. And again, that might be just because of Jonah Hill's filmography. It's capitalized on him being crude and just kind of sleazy. Right, and mm-hmm. so the idea of him playing such an innocent character as Matt in this movie just seems like it wouldn't work. Could surprise us, but I guess we will never know <laughs> because it's too late now. They're too old. I like that Josh Gad is actually pretty restrained here, considering what the average person would think of as a Josh Gad performance. This is not it. I mean, this is no. he's in the background every now and then. He'll throw a few zingers. You know, he's not even a motor mouth like you know he can be somewhere else he's not over the top he's just he he's playing his part and that's it uh so that's the school it's not a uh a josh gad vehicle like we said earlier but it definitely i think shows off his strength 
as a comedian without going over the top with it because it's definitely that's not the mission the mission of the movie is to sell you on rain wilson as a leading man that is the mm-hmm. priority and you know they do what they can with that i like josh gad in this and at the same time i don't know that it's enough to like show to a josh gad hater and make them change their mind but it's certainly something i think if you don't know josh gad you walk away from this thinking oh well, you know that guy was cool he was funny I'm glad he got a girlfriend. He had a cute scene with Emma Stone. <laughs> Just yeah, nothing compared to and you know, his the vehicles that make you dislike him. And Christina Applegate, I think we kind of said it without saying it in the first portion. Obviously, this isn't some like blow away career performance for her, but her autopilot is just so much better than so many people that uh, it's a treat. It's you know it, again, it certainly seems like she was not unhappy to be there and just was like all right this is going to be a movie i make and i might as well just you know give it my best she's obviously not going above and beyond but she's great yeah they, you were not kidding about the chemistry between her and rain wilson they they make for an unlikely couple but i was rooting for them i was happy that they they got close um I think i i actually think Chris applegate and jeff garland are the the mvps of, uh, oh, dude, Jeff Garland is so good. Just that <laughs> nerdy, you know, middle America dad, but you know, wants more out of life. And there's that part where he uh, he does the devil horns with Rain Wilson, and they interlock, <laughs> and he like holds his hand like that, and he just is like looking at it, and you know, he feels like he's been touched by God type thing. And uh, everything that Rain Wilson says when he's going on his tangents about it's about living the dream and fighting the fight, and Jeff Garland's just like, yeah, it is. He has like some <laughs> line in the background. He's great, and you know, he's obviously a perennial actor of the past twenty five years, and it's not breaking news to say he's an entertaining guy. But in this in particular, I, I feel like he flexes some comedic muscles that I haven't really seen him do otherwise. Yeah, much like Josh Gad, he's kind of hanging in the background and just making the most of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's well. I'm back here. Might as well do something with it. And uh, yeah, we had put over Sudeikis pretty hard in the first portion, but I, I stick pretty true to that. I thought he was really, really funny. Um, but because like Vince Vaughn, he's so good at that role that it's it's a bit disconcerting that he can be so good at being a prick, but <laughs> he's damn good at it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's. I like Sudeikis in general. I always find him funny. Oh yeah, uh, and this was I'd forgotten that he was the manager, so it was it was a treat. Uh, I think that the only other part that doesn't quite work for me, and maybe it's just because they're such big names now, but the the rest of the Vesuvius crew, I always feel like they don't get enough to do. They, you know, you get the setup at the very beginning, and then you see them for a little bit at the end, but. Maybe it, this is the one case where I think maybe history has hurt that sequence, at least for me, or those two sequences, because they're they're big names, but they're not really doing much. I know that they're funny, but I, I've seen them, you know, in a way, I've seen them be funnier. I, I guess my expectation of what they were going to do with these characters, with the, the 80s rock band stereotypes, who later become, uh, I guess they continue being stereotypes, but now they're like modern day stereotypes pertaining to be British and everything. I... I just thought that they, I don't know, I wanted something more outrageous. And maybe it speaks, again, to just the sensibilities of the movie, that it was not interested in doing that. But did you feel like like that, watching uh, Arnett, Armisen, and Cooper kind of 
being low key, but not in a, in a. At least I didn't think it was as funny as when Jeff Garland or Josh Gad are being uh, low key. I think um, retrospectively, it makes the entire thing funnier that they're the band and they're you know a list actors. Uh, at the time, I mean, this was a year before The Hangover, so Bradley Cooper wasn't the tits quite yet. But it's, uh, I think it just makes it funnier that, especially watching it now, that fucking Bradley Cooper is one of the band members, and just how stupid they act. If you made it too much, if you gave them too much more, it would have taken away from kind of the the uh, core, the nucleus of the story. So I can see your point, but for me, and the way the movie worked, I thought it was fine limiting their interactions. Yeah, there is one moment I think the one, the one moment I truly dislike in the movie, it's it's in that prologue, and it's where I can tell the riffing. There's not a whole lot of riffing in this movie, uh, at least not that I can notice. But when they're in the car, they're escaping Rain Wilson and Will Arnett and Fred Armisen, who are sitting at the front. They just have this weird discussion uh, about what is it about. It just you can tell Arnett is just riffing and Armisen is yeah. just kinda like going, Yeah, yeah, you're right, and repeating what he's saying. I think it might be about the way that Rain Wilson was running. I don't know. But it was just I'm like, there's no working, guys. Why didn't why didn't you cut it? <laughs> why didn't you stick to the script? Uh and then kind of wrapping up on our end too, uh, we had brought it up in Contrarian's Corner. One of the fascinating aspects about this movie is, you know, in this style of movie, you always have the protagonist give the rah-rah empowering speech um, about his character's morals and beliefs and why he's doing what he's doing, his convictions. And this, especially in the stage of life that I'm in right now, hearing that speech about basically <laughs> trying to grow up and the real world sucking and just being soul-crushing and awful, it's kind of something I'm starting to start to realize. Uh, and so hearing it i was like fuck man fish knows what's up uh but <laughs> fish fish you, has been watching the election coverage you had said a bit earlier about um if this wasn't a comedy it would be sad and i know specifically i've brought this up on this podcast before i can never remember if you've seen it or not though have you seen anvil the story of anvil uh i did finally uh, a couple months ago that was one of my quarantine uh, watches because you'd recommended it really early on on the podcast. Yeah, it's a I phenomenal it. movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's but it's very much this story of these guys that just can't give it up. And I think that's uh, and especially with social media and shit now, you know, it's sad if someone can't give up on their dream and they need to, you know, grow up. And that whole idea and the way it's laid out in this movie is an interesting thing to think about. And yeah, man, growing up sucks. And I think Hulu and I have talked about pretty specifically. It's uh, that whole idea of the nine to five and the way it's painted this movie too. That does work for some people. It obviously works for Stan, Jeff Garland's character, mm -hmm. but it's um, I don't think this movie really tries to say too much, uh, but, and again, that's by design and that's perfect. But it's when you watch this analytically, you think of the moral quandary and just the overall question that proposes there in this movie and does it in a way that's not heavy handed or insanely transparent. It's just kind of thrown out there and left for you to think about. Um, it's probably my biggest compliment of the movie that they throw that out there and just kind of, 
yeah, you can take with it what you want because we don't want to spend too much time trying to bog you down with intellect or, you know, self-reflection. So here's more Rain Wilson acting wacky and playing music. <laughs> yeah, um, but it gives you, it definitely gives you that in to relating to him because, mm-hmm. I mean, neither of us, and I think most people don't act the way he does, but I think especially as you get older, you can relate to the idea of just not wanting to give up on something that becomes less attainable as you get older. And everybody yep. wants to hear about, well, it's never too late and you always get a second chance. But the truth is the the odds decrease the older you get. So mm-hmm. this movie, like you say, it never it's never on the nose about it uh in a serious way. You know, it's it's on the nose about its comedy, but it's never it never sits out to really analyze the issue seriously. And that's fine. It just sets up the table so you can relate to the character, which I I love. I mean, that was, you, you know, and that's something that becomes more apparent when you, as you get older, you know, the experience of watching this movie 10 years ago versus watching this movie now, it's just that, wow, the, the Rain Wilson character speaks even more strongly to me now. Uh, even if we have nothing else in common, just the idea that, uh, you know, you had plans and life had different ideas and then I think the extra layer of finding a way back into those things through a younger generation is, again, it's not something that the movie is putting at the forefront other than for comedic purposes. You know, it's kind of a fairy tale, the way everything works out, but that's, you know, it, that's what the movie is. But still, it's just cool to see it happen because it, it's it's a way of, of kind of, you know, as an artist who doesn't make a living, out of his art, I can certainly relate to that part, right? Yeah. There's a, the community where there's people that are much younger than me, but working with them, it, you know, it's when I work with them, it doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, you can take that, that line of storytelling into very dark territory, uh, or you can just use it to tell a fairy tale. And either way, you can relate to it. It's just like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you're down, but you're not out. And, you know, you're older, so it's harder. But you know, there's still you still have a chance. I imagine when you watched it the first time, were you able to relate at all to Rain Wilson? Fuck no. Because that was the <laughs> thing in that in that quote from the first half. You know, the guy that was like, "Well, you know, the kids are not gonna relate to to Rain Wilson, and and the adults are not gonna relate to the kids." So, what gives? I was 21. I had the whole world figured out, man. And I had, you know, I was going to take on the world and I was going to be something and be somebody. Were you, well, were you Josh Gad? Were you uh, Emma Stone or were you uh, Teddy Geiger? Uh, I don't know. I was Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> the hangover was just waiting for you around the corner. <laughs> That's right. Uh, no, at that age, I would have been Jason Sudeikis. I was a fucking cocky prick. <laughs> That tone to it also has aged because we have aged. But again, so many of the things we've called out in this movie, I feel this movie was just caught at a time, at, at a changing of the guard. And this movie was unfairly maligned and kind of beat up because of that. And I'm not saying that, again, to reiterate, the changing of the guard I'm referring to, I believe, has possibly done more damage than good. Very possibly. But that resulted in things in transition getting kind of picked apart unnecessarily so and i think this is an example of that it's nothing special 
Uh, I, I called out Joe Dirt earlier. Joe Dirt's better than this. But it's one of those uh, things of... I haven't seen Joe Dirt, so I really can't argue very hard. But come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, watch Joe Dirt, first of all. Does he have Kid, Josh Gad? <laughs> Kid Rock and Christopher Walken are incredible in that movie. It's... Uh, yeah. Joe Dirt's fantastic. But that's not the point. We can We can do an episode on Joe Dirt talking about the rocker and it is a perfectly fine movie it's a perfectly cromulent movie and it just unnecessarily so uh was punished for being average i think i i took a lot away from this and especially given the the nature of everything right now and just the overall sense of doom and gloom and cynicism in the world fuck yeah i wanted to watch a movie every once in a while that's gonna make me laugh and it's gonna have a happy ending i don't care if it's predictable or not it's sometimes that's the way you got to go do you think the band stays together? Do they make it to, uh, to the second album or the second tour? Uh, maybe, but then Emma Stone gets a singles deal, like a solo deal, and <laughs> becomes you know this top superstar in the world. And uh, eventually, Fish is—I could see him ending up like a, a teacher, teaching drums somewhere. I think that that would be a, a noble conclusion for his character. Yeah, he ends up realizing that he's he's hurting too much. He doesn't have the the physical ability to keep to keep up with the band. Uh, yeah, and then he the the ending, the original ending of the movie was going to be that he goes to stage dive, but he <laughs> dives out of frame, and you don't know what happens to him at the end of the movie if he lives or dies. So that makes it six wrestler references now. <laughs> I think so. We squeezed him in. Um, yeah, I my thought as the movie was was wrapping up was that it was a terrible idea for for Curtis and uh, and Amelia to date. Because when yeah. they break up, that's the end of the band. Fleetwood Mac style. Well, I said all that, and you know, I still stand by my statement. It's not a great movie. I, I was thinking C-plus was going to be what I would give this movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with three stars. Three stars, and I feel... I don't know that I would call it a guilty pleasure, because I really, I don't know, the guilt is kind of exercised now. After this episode, <laughs> just oh yeah, no, it's just a fine movie. It's not a great movie, but it's it's a fun time, and I'll probably watch it again eventually. I'm definitely gonna get through those special features. Listen to this, Alex. Actually, look at the back of the DVD case and it has them all listed. Uh, so audio audio commentary by director Peter Catania and actor Rain Wilson. Audio commentary by actors Josh Gad, Teddy Geiger, Emma Stone, and Jason Sudeikis. Deleted scenes, gag reel, MTV panel featurette, mad gags. I guess that's Josh Gad's gags. Uh, internet podcasts. <laughs> I don't know what internet podcasts means. Uh, Vesuvius gags. Pete Best interview. Who's Pete Best? Okay, so that was going to be like the closing thing. Pete Best was, this movie is quote unquote loosely based on Pete Best. He was the original drummer for the Beatles uh, and has a cameo in this movie. A lot of people say that the story here of uh, Robert Fishman is similar to that of the Beatles, that he was kind of booted in favor of the charming and just sexual tyrannosaur that was Ringo Starr. So does Pete Bass drum naked? No, Dino the Naked Drummer that played for the Murder Junkies does, though. (laughs) I... 
Until Maya Forbes and Wallace uh, Waldorski tell me specifically that that was an homage to the murder junkies, I will believe it was. So take <laughs> well, that. There's no Gigi Allen interview, but <laughs> there is uh, also Vesuvius public service announcements, Rain Wilson office rocker featurette, behind the band Vesuvius featurette, Rock Tales featurette, the music featurette, Rock Beat with Fish Fishman featurette. I'm not bitter music video and Fox movie channel presents in character with the rocker. <laughs> that all sounds phenomenal, especially the featurettes on Vesuvius. If they got like more footage of fucking Will Arnett, uh, Armisen and Bradley Cooper, that you're going to have to give me a full breakdown of that. That sounds phenomenal. I think that everything I wanted from them is in the special features. <laughs> Didn't make it to the movie. You'll get it one way or the other. Well, C plus three stars. That's that's not a bad way of starting year seven. Not at all. All right. So moving along to plugs for this episode. My plugs are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum in that uh, movie I'd never seen before. And then one I've seen a whole bunch that I revisited over the past week that I was really excited about. And I don't think there's a, much of a universe where people haven't seen Hocus Pocus or Looper, but those were going to be what I, uh, plugged for this week's episode. What about yourself, Julio? Uh, I can tell you, I haven't seen Hocus Pocus yet. I know the time is coming when I will have to, uh, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it hasn't happened yet this time around. I, you know, I've been watching a whole bunch of movies, uh, trying to catch up some stuff that I had missed. Did you watch the last, the most recent Pixar movie, Onward? Came out like right before the coronavirus shut us down. So it was in theaters for like two weeks, I think. I did not, but wasn't Chris Pratt like the lead voice in it? Mm -hmm. It was Chris Pratt and Spider-Man, Tom Holland. So I I finally watched that. Disney Plus, baby. Uh, There's also this uh, documentary. (laughs) Talk about different sizes of spectrum. Uh, There's this documentary on Hulu called Totally Under Control. Have you heard about this, Alex? I have not. It's basically the the brief history of uh, the coronavirus spread in the U.S. as told by the scientists who kept trying to uh, to make things better <laughs> and Jesus. failing. Yeah. It's, it's quite the watch. And then I also watched the Netflix sort of original, I guess, uh, Enola Holmes, which is about Sherlock Holmes's younger sister with Henry Cavill playing uh, Sherlock Holmes, and Eleven from Stranger Things playing Enola Holmes. If that's not enough to make you want to watch it, well, then I don't know what else to tell you, Alex. But uh, <laughs> but we shall be discussing the all these plugs uh, at length on our Patreon. So uh, if you're a patron, head over there. You'll hear us talk about it. If you're not a patron, you can join patreon.com slash Prime. Check it out. We already have two new patrons. We just started, and we have two, so... Welcome, Dan Brannick. Some of you, hopefully most of you, know from the Netflix and Swill podcast. And Katie and Oti from the For Your Reference podcast, uh, which you should also know. Uh, so welcome, guys. Thank you for supporting the cause. And uh, be like them if you want to hear more stuff. If you want to hear Alex and I talk about the plugs and also just all the other stuff that we had to cut out of the episode for, for time. And now let's go to Perennial Plugs. Alrighty. So, as always, we want to thank the Festive Years for providing our opening and closing tracks. Opening Last Stand, closing Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hansworth Geeser, he's the man behind our logo. Logos, multiple now. Uh, all the artwork 
that has to do with contrarians on our Twitter, on our Facebook, on our Patreon, everywhere. You can thank Hans for that, just like we do. Uh, if you're interested in his work, he has a website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, you can talk to him about his podcasts. He has uh, Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs. He has Marginal and Contantisonante, two podcasts about economy. All those are in Spanish. You can find them on any podcatcher. Uh, he also has a podcast in English called Living in Peru, which is about immigrants to Peru. He also has books because he's a writer on top of being a podcaster and being an economist and being a father. He has time to write zombie novels. Recently, he published a compilation of short stories by multiple Peruvian authors uh, called Zomos Zombies. It's just zombie stories set in Peru uh, and one in Antarctica, apparently. Anyway, Hans is great. You can reach him uh, on Twitter at Mildemonios, email mildemonios at hotmail.com. Talk to him if you want logos, comics, books, just to chat with somebody that's uh, stuck in Peruvian quarantine. It's a great guy. And then finally, of course, we want to give a shout out to Miss Zoe Perez for helping keep our social media accounts looking so fancy and pretty. Doing work on our Instagram account and also our Facebook. Zoe, we appreciate the work you put in for us. And the Julio requests keep on coming as we move on to episode 120, a gray area episode. And we will be tackling another one of Julio's guilty pleasures, and that being Eurotrip from, what was that, 2004 that that came out, 2003? Uh, <laughs> that is 2004, February 20th, 2004. I don't know that I feel guilty about this one, Alex, at all. Oh, <laughs> so, being that it's a gray area episode, uh, Julio and I will split the duties. Uh, I will be attacking the movie, he will be defending it. Uh, I think I've only seen that movie once and it's when it came out in theaters the main thing I retained from it is that uh, we have a lovely Matt Damon cameo in it so it'll be an interesting uh, revisiting yeah I, I look forward to it I haven't seen it in forever and uh, unlike The Rocker I don't own it maybe this is the excuse I need to finally add it to my collection a hunt for a, for a cheap Blu-ray of Eurotrip uh, either that or maybe get the Eurotrip Extreme Edition that probably has like three discs worth of uh, special features but no trailer all right, well, Eurotrip is on deck. This is going to conclude our episode on The Rocker. That's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Bye.